to love to be helpful. And just to catch you up on what we're doing this this year, we've been studying a book of the New Testament, the book of Romans. Uh, it's a letter, a long epistle by the Apostle Paul, and we're taking a break this summer to look at the Psalms. And so we're just starting that this morning. And uh, if uh, you may or may not have background with the Psalms, you've probably heard quotes from them. But we're going to do some probably that are familiar, some that are off the beaten path. This morning's a little bit more off the beaten path. And we're going to be in Psalm 131. If you don't have a Bible, the text is there in the bulletin. You can just follow there, Psalm 131. I don't know if you remember this from over 10 years ago now, but 2003, there was a blackout in New York City, and all these people had to walk across the Brooklyn Bridge when the, uh, when the um, you know, when mass transit shut down. And of course, there was just a lot of immediate fear because this is post 9-11, and everyone wondered, was this, you know, related to a terrorist act? I had a friend who was in New York City and was on the subway when that blackout hit. And uh, he's not from New York, so it's you know, it already foreign and just was very scary. He said as soon as the lights went out and everything went black and the subway stopped, that you just heard screams. But people made their way out of the subway and they got up onto the main ground and uh, a lot of commuters started walking across the Brooklyn Bridge. And he was one of them because he was staying in that area. So just this, you know, no one thinks their day is going to hold back. So he's walking across and he said, it's weird how your mind starts to play tricks on you because he started to think, what if that was to get tens of thousands of people on the bridge and then blow the bridge up? And so he's walking and he's just feeling this anxiety rise. Am I going to see my wife and all that? And uh, all of a sudden behind him, he hears, and the way he described, I'm just going to say it the way he described it the unmistakable sound of a big woman in heels walking on pavement. And he hears this voice start in uh, singing, We're going to have a talk with Jesus. Just this song about we're going to sing to Jesus and we're going to tell Him all our troubles. And he said, without even turning around, he just grabbed her hand and walked across the Brooklyn Bridge because, like, (laughs) this was the person to be with. Everything about her just said, Al-Qaeda, Shmal-Qaeda, God will take care of me. And that is a moment where there's a pretty clear distinction between, you know, fake confidence and real confidence because I think we've all done fake confidence before. We postured or bravado or whatever you want to call it, but, but that's, I mean, that was real. That was real. There are different kinds of psalms, and I'll probably say this more as we go through this series. There are thanksgiving psalms, there are coronation psalms, there are sad psalms, lament psalms, there are confidence psalms. Psalm 131 is a confidence psalm. It's not an arrogance psalm. It's a confidence in God. And as I read this, I want you to hear the image that David uses. David wrote this psalm. What does a calm, confident, secure soul look like? Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul, 
like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we would say as we come to your word what you already know, and that is that we come here body and soul. And we may have thought a lot about our soul in the last few days. We may have given it almost no thought. But as body and soul, as real men and women, we come to you and we say, please have mercy on us that we might hear what we need to hear and be transformed. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I had an acquaintance, a new acquaintance, who emailed a emailed out a blog post that he had read, said, give this a read, I think you'll like it. And I had never seen the blogger before, but it was interesting. Uh, And, you know, most blogs now are just kind of bulletin boards. It's links to other websites or whatever, but this really was someone blogging about his life and reflecting on his experience. Not familiar with the man, but let me me just read you a portion of what he wrote. He said, this, this was this week. By favorable calculations, I misuse 93% of my time. The resulting guilt is a poisonous low-level radiation that creates a self-powered shame spiral. In fact, I'll waste an entire day searching for dopamine hits to medicate the fact I'm not getting anything done that day. I'm a distraction junkie. In many ways, I'm representative of an American contradiction, incredibly busy and willfully slothful. People say I'm the busiest person they know, but I know what my days actually produce, and it feels like not much. That Just two more sentences. Even though I've got a to-do list the size of hell's roll call, I revert to shopping for stuff I don't need and nibbling social media pellets. Distractions are refined sugar for the soul. Brief, enjoyable, and crashing. Let me read that last one one more time. Distractions are refined sugar for the soul. Brief, enjoyable, and crashing. Now, I really don't don't know who wrote that. I don't know where he's coming from spiritually, but it's just, it's interesting to think about the way he framed that because as we look at our lives, and I'm sure that a lot of us resonate with what he says, and we think about what he's describing, we would tend to frame it in terms of that's a productivity issue, or it's a discipline issue, or however you want to put it. But it's rare that we would think consciously that this is a soul issue. This is an issue about my soul, not just my productivity or discipline or whatever. David, you know, again, all kinds of people in the room, I don't know how much background you have with David in the Bible. King David, the famous one. But he was a very realistic man. He was a king. Before he was a king, he was a shepherd. And if there's anything that will make you realistic, it's taking care of sheep outside. He was a husband too many times. He was a father of many, many children. So he was a realistic person. And what you find in this psalm is him reflecting on his soul. And what he's done with his soul. And again, I I never want to assume things of the room, but I think it's safe to say that everybody in here would like to be secure. 
you know, would like to walk through life with confidence, not with arrogance, but to walk through it with confidence because it's a messed up world and we're messed up people and things are going to happen that are very uncomfortable and they're very frightening. And we want to walk through that and be secure. So what does that look like and where do you get it? All right, so let's, let's look at this psalm. I want to look at three things. First off, the soul. I'm harping on that term a lot, the soul. Then the singers. And then the son, S-O-N. Okay, so the soul, the singers, and then the, song, uh, the son. First off, the soul. Now, again, a realistic man dealing with a lot of real issues. David is writing a song about himself, his experience, and he talks about his soul. Now, look at verse 2. He says that I've done something with my soul. This is the language of I'm actively doing something about my soul. Verse 2, I have calmed and quieted my soul. All right? How did that happen? Extremely important if we're going to answer these questions. And look at the next part in verse 2. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now, not to insult anybody's intelligence, but so that we're on the same page, what is a weaned child? A weaned child is a young child who had been nursing and no longer is. So he says, all right, here I am, I'm David. I have calmed and quieted my soul. Was that through something I did? Well, in a way. Because my soul with God is like a weaned child with its mother. Now think about that image because a weaned child is not with his or her mother to get something. Uh, The weaned child is not calmed by the prospect of, I'm about to be fed or you're about to do this for me. The weaned child with his or her mother is calmed by the presence of the mother. Not by what I'm going to get, not by what mom is going to do for me, but because mom is there and she's mom. And he says, I've calmed and quieted my soul well, what does that look like? My soul is like the child who's with God, not so much for what God is going to do for me. Now, in other Psalms, he talks about that a lot. But in this one, he's saying, I'm close to God because He's God. And I'm calmed and quieted because He's God. And let me say this before we move on. And I, again, not trying to insult anyone's intelligence, but can we just pause... And note that we are both body and soul. And we say that we know that. But we often do life like we're just bodies. Or just bodies and work and responsibilities. Uh, The last time that I was with a group of people who were around a body and the soul had departed to be with the Lord. So there's a person the person's body, but the soul was not there. There was just grief and sadness and weeping because of the love of that man. That man was and is body and soul. Let me ask you this. What would be more threatening to you? Now, I'm I'm asking these questions not to shame, but just to get you to think and feel a little bit. What would be more threatening if I said, this week 
you must eat nothing but processed food. Everything that you eat must come from a crinkly wrapper and have like 98 ingredients from the periodic table that, that make it up. Okay, so like almost no food in it. For the next week, you have to eat nothing but processed food. And you may not go near the Bible. Now, the second one, you might feel like, not ideal, but the first one, you would sort of feel like, well, some of you might think, excellent. But I think the more mature, healthy response would be, no, wow, that's, da- that's dangerous to just eat that for just a solid week. But, but here the response in that is like, woo, 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 body, body, do not mess with the body. But we're body and soul. If, if I were to say, for the next two weeks, you may not go near exercise. You may walk to whatever room you have to get to. You may walk to your car. You may not go near rigorous exercise. And you may only pray over a meal. Pray over your processed food for the next two weeks. The, the second one, you might think, well, that's, it's not much more, that's not much less than I pray already. But the first, you might feel like, oh, no, wait, 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 no, 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 no. I won't be me if I don't move my blood around. Again, I'm not setting anybody up to scold you, just to say, but hear that. Like, we say that we know that we're body and soul, but a lot of the way we do life is I'm a body with sort of a spiritual side to me. David is body and soul as father, king, warrior, husband. We are body and soul in our lives, wherever you are spiritually this morning. You know, the old-fashioned way that preachers or pastors would refer to the uh, congregation would be that uh, there are 100 or 200 or 500 souls under my care. David writes about his soul. Now, what about the singers? You know, the first singer of this, of this song is the composer. If you read at the end of 2 Samuel... There's different accounts of David's life and reign, but one of them is, uh, uh, comes to an end in 2 Samuel. And when he's about to say his last words, it, it describes David as, quote, the sweet psalmist of Israel. 2 Samuel 23. The sweet psalmist, the sweet song singer of Israel. And I just want to point that out to say, the psalms are not primarily for sermons. But you can, you can preach one from a psalm. And they're not primarily for like theological conclusions, although there's a lot of theology in the Psalms. They're songs. So David wrote a short song. And he wrote it for himself to sing and for other people to sing. And, you know, we forget these 150 Psalms, they were the hymn book of Israel. Now, let me ask you this question. David writes about himself, about his soul. Did his life stack up to the song? And the way I would answer is yes and no. I mean, he was a mixed bag, like most people are a mixed bag. Let's look at that. How did he measure up and how did he not measure up? And I'll give you just a few examples. What are things in David's life that do sound like Psalm 131? I'm close to God. My soul is calm and quiet. In fact, what does he say in verse 1? Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. He's saying not, I don't think about deep things. He does think about deep things. He's saying, I'm not arrogant. I'm not haughty. Now, what are ways you see that in David's life? One huge one is that between the time that the prophet Samuel 
anointed David, king of Israel, between that time and the time where he actually got to sit on the throne and be the king of Israel was years. And it was hard. And sometimes he's out living in the wilderness, on the run, living off the land. People are trying to kill him. Sometimes during that period, he's working for King Saul, who's a bad king. And King Saul's trying to kill him. And there are all these opportunities where God just seems to give King Saul to David on a platter. And all his men are going, take him out. God has just delivered your enemy to you, and he won't do it. He keeps, as it were, saying, I'm not going to hijack this and make it David's time. We're going to do this on God's time, and he waits. Now, that sounds like Psalm 131, when there was lots of danger and lots of hardship, confidence, calm. Okay, so that stacks up. What doesn't stack up? What are some of the most famous things in David's life? Some of the bad things. Uh, There's the sad episode when he, you know, when kings normally would be at war with their people on the front line. That he is home and he's at the palace and he's on the roof and he looks out and there's a beautiful woman and she's bathing. And he sees her. He sees a lot of her. And what happens inside of him? Well, he essentially says, well, she's... She's not my wife, but maybe it's not the case that she's not my wife. She's not my lover, but maybe it's not the case that she's not my lover. And he commits adultery. He seduces her into adultery, impregnates her, he kills her husband. That does not sound like verse 1. It doesn't sound like verse 2. It sounds like a needy soul, a restless soul, a hungry soul. Uh, Towards the end of his reign, he decided, let's count all the warriors... It's kind of all the battle-ready Israelite men. And even his military leader said, don't do that. We don't need to do that. God has given our enemies into our hands. David insisted, and they count, and it brings a plague on Israel. Why did he do that? You know, the law of God said, trust me, I'll fight your wars for you. God reaffirmed that. Trust me, I'll fight your wars for you. David had seen that, and he got insecure want to know the numbers, want to have his hands on it. Let's count them all so we'll document it. That's not like Psalm 131. But the fact that he was and he wasn't like the psalm didn't keep this from staying in the hymn book. You know, it stayed in Israel's hymn book and Israelites sang it. And, you know, every believer in God that sung that psalm was a mixed bag. Uh, This psalm is what's called a song of ascent. It means it's one of the songs that when people who lived outside of Jerusalem would travel there for religious reasons, when they would start going up, geographically up toward Jerusalem, they would sing particular songs. And so this was one of them. And all these believers in God over the generations, some of them at that moment... They really did trust God. And they really they felt that like because he's strong, I'm okay. And then there were all these ways that they didn't trust him. And they had anxieties. And they wanted control like we do. So everybody that sung Psalm 131 was a mixed bag except for one singer. And that was the son. Uh... You know, this is probably going to come up every sermon in this series, but let me just say it for the first time here. 
It's really amazing as we look at Psalms to think this is Jesus' hymn book. Jesus grew up not just reading, but singing and internalizing these songs. And one way you can tell that is that when you look in the Gospels, he can just, boom, quote them off the top of his head. Uh, I can think of one place where he's in a debate with guys who are trying to trick him, and he quotes the Psalms, number one, because what he quotes proves his point, but number two, they, would know, they just would know those lyrics. Boom. Always had them. On the cross, when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the beginning of a song. That's Psalm 22. The one person who could sing Psalm 131 and just live it out flawlessly, just airtight, was Jesus. You know, I mean, he, he said to his enemies, my, my food and drink is to do the will of my Father. And no matter how hard you scrutinized his life, it would, it would withstand the scrutiny. That he is close to his Father and he loves him. And note, Jesus did not move through life with arrogance, but boy, did he move through with confidence and resolution and calm in the face of threat. Now, let me ask you a theological question if we're thinking about the Son of God, Jesus. Did Jesus have a soul? Have you ever thought about that? Like when we think about human beings... We tend to think of, I mean, I've already said these two aspects, these two components, body and soul. But when we think about Jesus from a biblical, historically Christian point of view, we think in terms of, we tend to not say body, soul. What do we think of? Fully God, fully human. 100% God, 100% man. Did Jesus have a soul? Here's the thing. If he did not have a soul he wouldn't be a human being. He still has a soul because he's still a human being. Now, let me ask you this question. Does Jesus in the Gospels ever talk about his own soul? Because he did talk about souls, you know. It's a famous one where he says, uh, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and then loses his soul? He said other things like that. But did Jesus ever talk about his soul? And there's really just one place where he does it. And this is what I want you to to notice. That when he does, it sounds like the opposite of Psalm 131. Now, this is the one man, the one real human man, the one real, true Israelite who perfectly lived out what Psalm 131 would look like. But you get to the end of his life, and when he refers to his soul, it sounds like the anti-Psalm 131, because he says, my soul is very sorrowful to the point of death. He says to his friends, remain here and watch with me. Why would he say that? And, you know, whether you're here and you're a long-time Bible student or whether you're new to these things, maybe you being here this morning is you beginning to try on these things, I want to commend to you a theme to start noticing in the Bible because it's all over the place. Recurring. 
the theme is, what did Jesus let go of that his people might take hold of it? What did Jesus lose so that his people can possess it? Now, think about this. At the end of this worship service, I'll do what I do every Sunday. I'll pronounce a benediction, and a benediction is God's good word on his people. And the blessing's not coming from the minister. It's coming from him. It's pronounced by the pastor. Benediction, good word. Did you know there's such a thing as a malediction? A bad word. When Jesus says, my soul is sorrowful to the point of death, it's the night he's going to be arrested. And what is he moving toward? He's moving toward... He knows something the disciples don't understand. He is going to undergo the malediction that all these people who believe in him, will believe in him, that they deserve. And the next day, as he's on the cross, it is... It, I mean, this is not a stretch at all. It is God saying to him, not the Lord bless you and keep you. But it's his heavenly Father saying to him, the Lord curse you and forsake you. The Lord turn his anger towards you. The Lord turn his face away from you and give you judgment. Why is the one guy that lived out Psalm 131 undergoing that? Because he's taking the place of all the people who will believe in him that deserve malediction. And he deserves benediction, but he lets it go so that we can have benediction. Now, everything I just said, we can know that. David did not know that was going to happen. David was close to God. And, and you know, with the adultery, the murder, and the foolishness of that census thing that he does, God still said, you know, he's a man after my own heart. God loved David the sinner and forgave him of his sins and loved him. But David didn't know what all I just said to you. So think about this. How does the psalm end? Verse 3, what does it say? David, who does not know that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is going to send his own son, who is God, to become the, the embodiment of the Psalms and then be cursed so that we can have the blessing. He doesn't know that. David says in verse 3, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Man, do you understand how important that was going to be down the road? Because down the road, God's people become so disobedient, so wicked, that God even says, you have outdone these wicked nations that I sent you into the promised land to displace. You have outdone them. And he sends his people into captivity in Babylon. Now think about being an Israelite, and you're in Babylon. You're not in Judea. You're not in your ancestors' land. You're in this pagan land. Other deities, other culture, and you don't mean squat. And you're with your people, and you know Psalm 131, and you're singing about, my soul is like a winged child. 
My soul is like a weaned child with its mother, and you're looking at your life. Could you hang on to it? And what is David saying? We know our God. Our God can be trusted, even if the little child, our souls, our immaterial being, even if the soul doesn't understand what he's doing and why he's doing it, we know our God enough to trust him and say, he's got it. Why are we in captivity? Why does he let the pagans have the power? Why don't God's people matter? Israel, hope in the Lord. Take your hands off it because you cannot control it. Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And friends, if David is saying that, with the limited amount that he knew, with what we know, we have got to say to each other, Israel, God's people, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Everybody in this room could tell their story about the thing that's happening to you right now, or at least has happened extremely recently, where whether you've said it out loud or not, you're looking at God going, why would you do that? Don't you understand how much more joyful I would be? Don't you understand how I would be so less preoccupied? Don't you know how much more free I would be to serve you in other ways and give you glory if you would take that out of my life? Or you hadn't done that, but you did that. And you won't take it away. You've heard what I've asked you to do. What is not only Psalm 131 saying, but what is the gospel of Jesus Christ saying? The incarnation and the death and the resurrection of the Son. What is it saying? Whether or not our souls understand what we're going through, you may... Now, I'm not saying this in a touchy-feely way. I'm saying this in a Psalm 131 way. You may, not so much physically but in your soul, sit in the lap of the living God and say, I take my hands off it. I'm going to trust you. I mean, it is interesting to me, just from a pastor's point of view, oh, that there were more of this in my own life, that when someone is really spiritually growing, really thriving, that you'll hear them say things like, you know, such and such happened and I just wanted to get my hands all on it and fix it. And man, that's American. Fix it, deal with it, action plan. And that, all that stirred up in me and I stopped and said, I'm going to pray about it. Take my hands off it and I'm going to trust Him. I'm going to calm and quiet my soul. Okay, that is health. That is spiritual life and health. But let me, let me say this too. What about massive things? Like we could tell our individual things, sickness, unemployment, problem in marriage, loneliness, wanting to be married, whatever. But what about giant things? I, I mentioned this at the 830 service. I like watching the news. I like following the news. I'm, I am 
less engaged with the news than I've been in a long time. And I don't want to have my head in the sand, but it's just the 24-hour news cycle of global bad news is so wearisome. No, I don't want to be disengaged from it. We want to pray about these things. We want to be involved in these things. But what about when you see something like Boko Haram, just bullies that kill and kidnap and like no one's really doing anything about it? What about Haiti? What about North Korea? What about Somalia? What about these nations we talk about? They just seem unfixable. What about... When I first moved here, I took a tour of Greenville, and it was somebody that had really worked in impoverished areas of Greenville, and I just started seeing all these places that were maybe two, three blocks off streets I knew, and just a level of poverty that I didn't even realize was here. And this guy had been working with it for decades, and I said, well, man, like, why doesn't somebody do something? So wet behind the ears to even ask that question. Why doesn't somebody do something about it? And he said, all right, what? And I went, something. And he said, What? What, what are you going to do? Get a, tr- a trillion dollars of free money and just reconstruct everything and make it ideal? Um, I want to read you, as we close, this is a passage by Dostoevsky from the brothers Karamazov. And, and listen to what this character says about, I see suffering. I see bloodshed. So what do I do with it? And he says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. He says, I believe like a child. If there were no resurrection, if there were no incarnation, that would be beautiful rhetoric and it would be ungrounded. But there is the incarnation. God the Son became a man. And there is His atoning death and resurrection. And here's what that means. This week, when something comes along, and the way we want to handle it is just quintessential American, I'll get my hands on it and I'll fix it, that we may take the next step with confidence and say, right now, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to calm and quiet my soul and say that God is God and I am not. And He's not a generic God. He's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I can trust Him. That is spiritual growth. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, this does not come naturally to us, and we are the folks who want to put their hands on it and control it and make an action plan, whether it's the thing just in our own life, our own home, or whether it's citywide, nationwide, global. 
would you enable us to hear and see and experience the good news so deeply that our souls would be calm and quieted and we would keep hoping in you and speaking into each other's lives to hope in you. Lord, would you return us to your word and to prayer, not as to-dos, but that we might draw near to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.